Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audrey Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello and welcome to The Point Cybersecurity with my guest, Megan Stiefel. Is that correct, Stiefel? <laughs> so, yes. Excellent. Yes. Um, quick introduction on Megan. Megan Stiefel is Chief Strategy Officer for the Institute for Security and Technology. She's also the founder of the Silicon Harbor Consultants, which provides strategic cybersecurity operations and policy counsel. Prior to founding Silicon Harbor Consultants, she was an attorney in the National Security Division at the U.S. Department of Justice, and she most recently served as Global Policy Officer and Capacity and Resilience Program Director at the Global Cyber Alliance. So welcome, Megan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I would love to jump in on talking around nation-state ransomware attacks. So um, the Department of Justice recently announced that, that NatSec Cyber, a new section within the National Security Division created to, make, to take action against nation state groups. Um, how is this section addressing the global ransomware environment? So um, to back up a minute, uh, the National Security Division is the division where I was a full-time employee for uh, eight plus years in the Department of Justice. And I'm very pleased to see the the development and, and establishment of this section. Um, really, it, I think, is, is formalizing work that has been underway since the time I was there. Um, and among the thing, among the reasons that this section needs to be formalized is that it both conveys um, within the department, but as well to external stakeholders, whether that's companies, but also uh, our allies and partners, as well as our um, you know countries with whom we don't see eye to eye on, on most of the issues, thinking about in particular Russia and China, it sends a signal that this is an issue that the government in particular continues to take seriously. Um, in terms of how it's combating ransomware, we know, um, we sort of collectively, but we as an organization, as the Institute for Securities and Technology, issued a report in April of 2021 um, where we made some specific recommendations on how to combat ransomware. And one of the top recommendations was that uh, governments in particular be more uh, outspoken about the fact that they recognize and treat ransomware as a threat to national security. So it's not just a business nuisance as it was sort of in the 20 teens, um, but it has risen to the level of a risk to a threat to national security. And by making this recognition, governments then, uh, particularly in the United States, are able to avail themselves of additional tools to combat national security threats that may not be available if something is considered sort of pure crime. Um, so by... Can you talk about some of the tools that are being used to combat the threat itself. Sure. So the probably the most visible one for some is this idea of the sanctions list. Um, so the the Department of the Treasury, the Office of Foreign Asset Control has continued to use um, sanctions to identify members of um, of the ransomware threat ecosystem who have been sanctioned and thereby limited their ability to travel, um, worked to seize funds. Uh, and the like. Um, 
or, or freeze funds rather, excuse me, freeze funds. So I would say sanctions is one example, but um, in thinking about the Department of Justice in particular, leveraging the, the law enforcement and national security capabilities that the government has at its disposal, one that I think listeners may not have been as attuned to in the past is that the government has been transparent in saying that it uses Section 702 of the FISA Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Amendments Act um, to uh, combat ransomware. And I think, um, so I, that's one of the tools that the government is using. So thinking about its um, ability to collect information from uh, service providers uh, in the United States under uh, lawful authorities that are subject to reporting and privacy and civil liberties protections. Um, so looking at financial tools, looking at law enforcement and, and intelligence collection tools um, are kind of the, the top three um, that we've seen. And there are, of course, others that the government might choose to use so in the future and thinking about um, uh, there's the uh, International Emergency Economic Power, so IEPA, which some of these sanctions are tied to, um, but there could be other tools that the government could use. Uh, the last one I would point to um, is something that also came out of one of our recommendations. Well, it, it aligns with one of our recommendations, which is this idea that we as the government, we, we need the government to better support organizations so that they can better prepare themselves against a range of cybersecurity threats, including ransomware, and that they can better recover from those. So um, money, um, the government is, is making available through a grant program administered by the Department of Homeland Security funds uh, that were appropriated, uh, I believe, under the, um, the infrastructure bill uh, from the last, uh, let's see, the fall of 2021, November. Um, they are now making funds available to the states to help uh, also better prepare. So we need to think about kind of how do we better prepare and, and then how do we better respond? And across that spectrum are these range of tools from law enforcement capabilities, treasury, uh, so financial tools, and then kind of monetary assistance. Are we doing anything around the area of actually going to the technology providers, so the service providers, in terms of trying to combat these kind of attacks before they actually get to the end users? Is that anywhere within yes. the manifesto? Um, so the government's manifesto, I, I, I think so. It, it's um, I don't have perfect insights on, on that piece, but we know that that the vulnerabilities that that can be leveraged to launch ransomware attacks are vulnerabilities that can be leveraged to conduct a range of of cyber um, actions or attacks. If some people want to go that far, um, things like the the inconsistent use of multi factor authentication, the failure to patch uh, vulnerabilities, the failure to have a vulnerability notification process in the first place. So how do bugs get get uh, reported to organizations. Um, so there are, are a number of steps that organizations, both kind of developers and vendors can take. Uh, but then there's, there is the flip side of that, which is to say, well, who's going to buy these products and who's buying power can, can help these developers, vendors um, ensure that their products are, are brought to market in a more secure manner. And there, I think there is, you know, increasingly, more reporting about the fact that the government is intending and trying to use its procurement power to raise all ships so that if the government is procuring services from Microsoft, um, 
do do logs have to be paid for in addition to the securities? Excuse me, in addition to the software that Microsoft licenses have been granted to the government. Um, and so I think we're getting there, but there's certainly room for improvement in thinking about working our way back the vulnerability chain, if you will, to where a product service, a capability, a software comes to market and it doesn't come to market with, for example, known vulnerabilities. That, and that seems very reasonable to me. So in terms of the... <laughs> One would think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So in terms of kind of the global ransomware, so international ransomware and and kind of that side of things, um, recently the United Kingdom and Japan were um, victims of global ransomware attacks. Um, what is the motivation between in, for international ransomware attacks? Like, what are the motivations for the different groups? Do we know, you know, and and how does it differ? Um, so, like, groups that are targeting, say, UK and Japan versus the United States, is there is there different? Is it is it all for the money, or are there other motives that you're seeing? I would say it's it's mostly for the money, um, and one of the concerns that we've had since the time that we issued this report now almost two and a half years ago is that as the United States and its partners undertook more uh, in, in large, in most cases, kind of overt responses uh, to ransomware that, that attacks would begin to kind of expand out. So if the United States were to harden itself both diplomatically and through uh, protective measures um, as well as demonstrably kind of not just diplomatic channels, but, but overtly. And we can talk a little bit about what some of those overt signals have been that the United States Absolutely. has taken, because I think they've taken several. Um, other countries have become uh, targeted. Um, but in the end, the, at the end of the day, what's driving these actors is money. And so one of the other key recommendations that we had in our task force report, not to keep talking about it, but um, is that, that we need to follow the money and that if we are going to, it's not the, it's not a silver bullet turning off the money because we still will have vulnerable systems that are unpatched and the like that, that can be used for other um, malicious purposes. But if we are able to turn the money flow down, we can drive these actors to undertake different types of activities, perhaps ones that we are better prepared uh, to prevent um, against. Um, and at the same time, though, we know that that one of the ways to follow the money is by implementing some of the recommendations or all of the recommendations um, that the Financial Action Task Force has issued uh, to help combat the malicious use of um, virtual assets, cryptocurrency being a virtual asset. But not enough countries have implemented those recommendations. And so it's not to pick on the UK or Japan. I, I'm almost certain with that. The that. UK, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm almost certain that the UK has. I don't know that Japan has not. I just don't have that information in front of me. Apologies. Okay. Um, but other countries, particularly if we think about um, the global south, for example, last year, um, the percent of, of attacks in Latin America increased from 9% of, of global reports to 13%. Um, there we know there is less uh, uptake of these of these uh, recommendations, and so it's it's important we think to have consistently across the globe a kind of common baseline of actions that that um, financial systems are taking to to reduce the malicious and kind of illegal use of virtual assets, uh, because then there's kind of nowhere to hide um, exactly. where we have an uneven implementation of of known. Um, 
best practices, one of those being reporting. Um, what are we talking about reporting? We're talking about um, what's known as in the United States as suspicious activity reports. So a ransomware payment is certainly suspicious. Absolutely. <laughs> and it, in the United States, if you're a money services business, you have to report to um, you have to report a suspicious activity to Treasury. What makes you a money services business in the case of ransomware is if you're facilitating a ransomware payment. Um, so that's how we in the United States have, have begun to approach uh, trying to clamp down on the 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 spigot of money that's flowing to these actors. Excellent. So what you're suggesting is remove the prize and they'll, they'll do something else. It's <laughs> one of the things if money yes. is their motivation. Yes. So if we focus down into, you know, how the United States responds to cyber incidents associated with Russia specifically, how does that impact on our relationship with other cyber powerhouses like China, North Korea, Iran? How does that change things or have impacts on kind of how we interact with one another? I think there's a general consensus that, that everyone is watching us. Um, they're watching, you know, our, our friends and partners and allies are watching us to see kind of uh, how we are leading in this space. Although I think for a period of time, we, we haven't quite been the leaders in cyber policy um, that we would like to be. Um, but also, how are we, what is our defensive practice and what is our kind of response uh, approach? So, and that goes for our enemies, if you, so to speak, or the countries that we don't uh, share common, many common values with more authoritarian regimes like Russia, China, Iran, um, North Korea. And so when we were we to take an approach of not responding to an incident like colonial, the colonial pipeline uh, incident, you know, perceptions or reality of you know, perceived weakness is, is observed by others and, and I think can signal to them or inform their approach on, on how what types of attacks they might uh, attempt in order to send a variety of signals. So um, different countries obviously have different motivations and why they choose to uh, attack U.S. critical infrastructure or kind of rifle and, and hold hostage small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we, we used in the early days, so to speak, we used to talk about um the Chinese is rather stealthy, I think, and the the Russian. Maybe it was the reverse. I can't even remember now because I don't think the 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 uh, analogies are true. But it was kind of the the drunk burglar versus the 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 um, you know the stealth um, uh, operator. Um, and now we see many of these countries. You know, so are they are they overtly in in our systems and networks and making noise and leaving trail of breadcrumbs to signal to us that they are holding us at risk. Um, and so I think where we don't, uh, on the ransomware front, see as much of that perceived probably, or at least overtly, um, described holding us at risk on the ransomware front, we, we tend to think that much of this is kind of clumsiness. Um, in the other cases we see, you know, um, the, the kind of, uh, some of, some, some of the other actors leveraging, not necessarily ransomware, but other cyber, uh, attack tactics to signal that we are held at risk. Okay. So but, in other words, so they yeah. want to be found or they want to show they're there. Uh, certainly for ransomware actors. Yes. They can't get paid unless they, unless we know they're there. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> I agree with but, that. <laughs> yeah. 
so ransomware hasn't necessarily been the, the tool of choice, I would say, to send for kind of high-level conflict. Um, but the vulnerabilities that are leveraged to undertake ransomware attacks can also be the building blocks of uh, higher uh, higher escalatory types of attacks. So could you name a few? So what? where do they move on to if they're going higher? Well, I think this is where it, thing, the, the, the picture begins to break down a bit um, because in many cases, the assessment is that much of, many of these ransomware gangs are operating in, uh, in, in, in neighboring regions of Russia, that they're largely criminal groups who are driven by, by money, but that there are some who may be either over, um, kind of uh, operating at the behest of or informed by or protected by the Russian government. Um, so where do they go next? Well, if they become a quite a successful kind of ransomware gang member and we, the United States send, uh, information request to say, we think that this particular person is involved in unlawful activity in violation of a range of criminal laws. The Budapest convention is kind of where, uh, convention on cybercrime articulates and is kind of nationally, internationally accepted as, as a common uh, set of, of criminalized behaviors when it comes to to computers, um, rather than saying, okay, we'll go out and arrest this guy. It's, oh, he's, he's quite, he or she, most cases it's he, he's quite capable. We'll recruit him to the government. Um, and so then you can kind of see where, where we get um, those skills. Yeah. The skills deployed um, for other areas where we have seen, if you think about the shields up campaign that CISA had uh, was less about ransomware prevention, although there, there are aspects of it that are effective against combating ransomware, but more in the sense of critical infrastructure protection, where some of these gang actors may also be uh, what we used to call or still call, I think, moonlighting. Um, certainly, we thought with regard to China, if you think back to when um, the United States uh, indicted a number of actors associated with the 3PLA, there was a perception that they were doing both criminal and government-directed activity against us networks yeah no totally totally and it's 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 a very good example of of people with um two motivations or more (laughs) in terms of their activities Mm -hmm. so um let's talk a bit more about the international counter ransomware initiative um obviously initially founded in full of 2021 um, the CRI has expanded to include more than 40 member countries and it continues to grow. Can you talk about how this organization works to mitigate global ransomware environment and any successes that you've found through this mitigation? Sure. So, yes, the the counter-ransomware initiative, one can think of it as kind of simply as a coalition of the willing. Okay. So willing um, to share? So back to the earlier... <laughs> Well, I think they are working towards share. I think the first phase of willing is willing to say that ransomware is a risk to um, all of the member countries and not just them. Um, and so if we all have a common risk, then hopefully we can undertake common measures to mitigate that risk. Um, the, first, uh, the first meeting, as you noted, was in the fall of 2021. There was a meeting last fall uh, in November of 2022, and now there's there's a plan for a meeting in, in coming again this year. The the ICRI International Counter Ransomware Initiative um, uh, Task Force, excuse me, ICRTF, um, is one of the pieces of the work that the Counter Ransomware Initiative is 
undertaking. I think one of the things, one of the success stories of the initiative at a, at a very high level is the spectrum of countries who are participating in it. Um, so where there are countries as large, you know, kind of the United States as its, as a leader or the founder of it over to countries that are less kind of known necessarily not to, not to cast aspersions, but um, one doesn't necessarily think about Bulgaria, for example, which is a member of the CRI as a uh, cyber policy lead. Um, and so I think where we have this broad spectrum of stakeholders who are willing to, to make this commitment and, and announce that they believe that um, ransomware is an issue that deserves global attention, that's critical. So they've announced um, uh, a range of actions, including, as I mentioned kind of a few minutes ago, this idea of implementing um, FATF recommendations, financial action task force recommendations, looking at um, – again, kind of a coalition working to, to use law enforcement uh, capabilities to address ransomware. And so we've seen a number of disruptions along those lines involving um, CRI member countries. Um, and then looking at uh, um, better shoring up their own um, domestic uh, space, so that they're they're they are less likely to become victims um, of ransomware in the first place. So, so in terms um, of the information sharing that's going on amongst the forty member countries and growing, like what what kind of information is being shared? Is it best practices? Is it known bad actors or bad groups? Um, what what kind of information is actually? being shared to kind of help create this united front? I think that's an area where it would be good to have greater transparency, frankly. Um, our sense is that it's a little bit of both, um, but it's not, um, there has not been a lot of information, I think, about it. There is um, talk of, there, there are big, I think there has been greater conversation around um, the work around information sharing that's being led by the UAE and Israel. Um, in now I've forgotten the name of it. Uh, the um, I'll find it and give it back to That's you. Right. Um, you remember it so later. A, a technical, <laughs> yeah, um, a technical information sharing platform. But what what actually what type of technical information are we talking about? I think is is a little less clear. Um, also, who participates in that? I think we we don't have a full sense of. Um, I do think it's it's. Uh, interesting and a good signal that, that these two countries have come together to work together on this um, effort around information sharing, but it needs to be holistic sort of to your question. It, it should be about, we shouldn't just be identifying uh, kind of TTPs. Um, we should be also looking at feeding those commonly used tactics, techniques, and procedures back to the vendors whose products are insecure and being leveraged to conduct these types of attacks. So um, I don't think that the, the platform, the name of which I can't remember at the moment, is supporting that. But but I think the overall initiative, uh, as it evolves, I would hope uh, that it would work to build that kind of an information environment. I think that would be amazing because that's the whole thing is you know trying to stop these things at the base. Like effectively, these solutions that have the vulnerabilities, they're enablers. 
And if those enablers are not addressed, yes. no matter how much we do, it's it's always going to be a challenge if there's always an open door. Agreed. <laughs> Excellent. So you have a really amazingly interesting background. I was wondering if you'd be happy to kind of talk a bit about kind of how you ended up where you are today. Um, I always quite like to know how people get somewhere because um, I never think it's that straight a road and it always makes it quite interesting. Are you happy to talk a bit about your your previous roles and how you ended up where you are today? Yes, the come to being story. Um, right place at the right time, wrong place at the wrong time. No, I think it's, I, I would say it's on the positive front. It's the right place at the right time, um, but, but not as um, intentional uh, of a course to get there. Um, so I would say I joined IST um, almost two years ago um, and had spent time as an adjunct with IST for a number of years prior to that. Um, and I joined IST, among other things, to help support implementation of the ransomware task force where I was a co-chair, but I was in my prior role at the Global Cyber Alliance at the time. Um, but that's a long way of saying I'm now in nonprofit land. Yes. Um, I've, yeah, I've been here for, um, since leaving the government, I left the government in 2014. Um, and, you know, I think what, what unites many of us in the nonprofit space around these issues is that there's, there continues to be a sense of mission. I think that's what drives all nonprofit organizations. That's how they get to their status. But what I've appreciated about being in the nonprofit space is that in many cases, I'm still working with a number of the same colleagues. Some of us have left the government, but we're still in a kind of unified front uh, as stakeholders in different spaces working towards a common goal, which is to have a more secure um, cyberspace, so to speak, uh, a more secure internet. Um, And I think one of the uh, roles that helped me kind of better recognize the role of, uh, we all know that, that, that industry plays a critical role. Um, but, and we call this kind of broad stakeholder effort, multi-stakeholder. And that means that we're talking about, uh, what industry can do, what academia can do, what civil society can do on profits, um, and what the government can do to advance a more secure ecosystem. Um, was my time at the NSC where I left the government from, uh, I, there I led, um, internet governance interagency, work and internet governance are kind of the norms that we set around how we operate um, and maintain the internet because there isn't actually a global governance board for the internet. And there are a couple of different organizations that, that make up um, uh, and set standards around how, how the IP spaces are allocated and and the requirements among companies that are then sub allocating those IP spaces and the like. Um, And, and through the work of, of internet governance, um, I had the opportunity to move from the sort of shadows of the national security space um, and, and engage more more closely with with um, all of the stakeholders. Um, and of course, at that time, and we continue, I think, in the United States to support what we refer to as the open, interoperable, interoperable secure, and reliable internet. We've added another phrase which um, to it, but uh, that work, I think was really kind of the bridge between spending a lot of time in the national security space and thinking about how the government can undertake its duties um, under the constitution to help protect the people of the United States and ensure public safety um, in a manner that reflects our values. So in a way where there is accountability for government actions that, that can 
where there lacks accountability and structure and reporting um, and transparency and and safeguards can be leveraged to invade people's privacy and and um, uh, overstep in a way that that doesn't reflect the values of the United States. So that's where I spend a lot of my time prior to the National Security Council staff was thinking about um, how the government does its surveillance work, particularly around intelligence collection. Um, and so initially began my government career as a FISA attorney. So I was doing um, applications to the FISC, which many people around the world, but especially in the United States, didn't really know existed until kind of the past decade or so since the Snowden disclosures. Um, and I had joined uh, the Department of Justice after two years in in, indus- uh, in industry, so to speak, and legal services. So uh, happy to talk further about any of those, but that's Absolutely. the short or long version. No, that's that's <laughs> right. No, I think it's, I think it's, it proves that you're driven and, and I agree being mission driven and, and particularly cybersecurity is important, but so is privacy, that side of things that, that sits very strongly with me. Um, the, the one of the first things that, um, happened when I actually joined Forcepoint was working on what our, our privacy policies should be and and kind of kind of doing privacy by design where so you need the security side absolutely 100% but it's it's more protecting individuals right to privacy at the same time mm-hmm. extremely important yes those yeah and so you know i think it's a growing space certainly across a number of different um professional paths this idea of these ideas of privacy and security we need policies that support that, but we also need technologies developed with these two priorities in mind. And so there's a critical conversation that, that, and it's not just one conversation that needs to happen between uh, employees and really anybody (laughs) um, developing this technologies in order to ensure that we are moving in a more sustainable direction. And we're not kind of continuing to develop products that lack security lack adequate security and don't have a pathway towards becoming more secure. Totally agree with you on that. So a bit of a different question, but still related to kind of how you got to where you are today. What's the most impactful lesson you've learned over the course of your career and what did it teach you? Well, that's a tough one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think probably, you know, that it's, you know, questions, Questioning something is not uh, is is actually um, to the benefit of everybody involved in the process, um, but unfortunately, I think sometimes it's it can be taken as an attack. Um, and so, where we are, you know, if you're looking at whether how the government can could the government is the government authorized under the law to undertake a particular type of activity? Well, you have to ask questions to understand what it's all about. Um, similarly, you know, a product comes to market we need to ask, we should be asking questions about that somewhere along the way um, up to and including our, our policy priorities. How, how did we set them? Um, and, and so I think part of questioning really is stakeholder engagement. And so, um, you know, I think the, I guess the flip side of that, if I can have two answers to the Absolutely. question is kind of like the never, <laughs> never judge a book by its cover. So ne- never judge a question by, you know, think, you know, look below the surface and see, um, you know, try, try to take an open mind in responding to questions and, and t- try to take an open mind in, in, in interpreting the intent of the question. Um, is the intent of the question to 
scuttle your process or is it to learn more to hopefully um, make your process as successful as possible, make your your policy agenda um, as as successful, as implementable, as supported as possible. Um, And, you know, I think that's, you know, leading from a from uh, from a vantage point or a perspective of there's always something to be learned from every conversation. Um, so maybe I had three answers, <laughs> but, but, you know, certainly we can't move forward. We can't have a more secure cyberspace, if you will, or a more sustainable cyberspace, meaning that it's, um, it's better than it was 10 years ago and it's going to continue to evolve in, in a better direction as opposed to a worse direction um, without engaging a range of stakeholders. And, and in order to do that, we need to, to talk with them. Absolutely. I, I I am in a hundred percent agreement on, on that one, and and there shouldn't be anything wrong with challenging a situation or challenging. So like products when they come out, like Internet of Things, brought us a whole raft of products that have bad security, and so they need to be challenged to be fixed. Mm-hmm. So so I I'm in yes. total agreement with you on that. So Megan, we're just running out of time. And I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us and talking around ransomware and, and, and also your career. Really appreciate it. And I just wanted to say to our listeners, till next time, stay safe. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher.